When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We're in uh, episode 27 of Exodus, God's Great Rescue, and we are looking at this great crossing. A couple, I want to just kind of, we, we, we got to the we got to the Red Sea. We crossed into the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was drowned, and all was good. Uh, but but it happened rather quickly yesterday. And I just need to pause and stop and think about and just tell you a few things because um, that story is so exciting. You just want to get through it, but you have to pause and you have to stop and you have to reflect on it a little bit. And the first reflection is this. Nobody knows where this route was. They did not mark it. Uh, and it they were in a hurry. <laughs> so they didn't stop and, and do trailblazing. I mean, they they did, Moses did write this down. Now, Moses wrote the book of Exodus, and he's the one that eventually composed the first five books of the Old Testament. So he knew where it was. And he called it Yom Suf. I mean, he he had a whole bunch of different place names that he said, this is where it was. Uh, and you'll remember, we talked about them a little bit. Um, uh, let's see. Um, we had, oh, let's see. Pai Haharoth, opposite Baal Zephan. We have Yom Suf, which has uh, been translated as the Red Sea. And so those are the only markers that we have in the Hebrew that tell us anything. There is nothing else. And we've had excavators and archaeologists and people trying to find this. I've seen stories about people finding chariot wheels and bones in the you know various locations near this area or these areas. And it is all fun and exciting. It's almost like the whole, where is the Mount Ararat and the Noah's Ark, right? I mean... Because if you could find Noah's Ark and Mount Ararat, I mean, it would just be so wonderful. It would confirm everything that the Bible says about it. Well, people have also done the same thing trying to find the route of the Exodus and where they crossed the Red Sea. Because if they found that, it would be very exciting. And finding a chariot and a wheel is exciting, but it is not necessarily proof positive that you have found where the crossing of the Red Sea. There's some guy that has said he's found the crossing because he's done some scuba diving and excavating and stuff like that. And he found chariots and red and wheels and things like that. And it's all in the time frame of when Pharaoh would have done this. But but you don't, you, I mean, there's nothing definitive. There's absolutely nothing definitive. We just have a few place names in Hebrew, which from 4,000 years ago, these places have changed names, uh, all sorts of different things. It's just unfortunate that we don't know. But it is quite possible that as they continue to excavate in these areas and find more information, that the pieces might be put together and we actually may know. We know that, for example, there were a lot of people that said that King David never existed. He's a figment of our imagination, even though the whole, I mean, the Bible is filled with stories about King David. And then they were excavating at this place called Tel Dan, and they all of a sudden found all the stuff about David, about how he was king and all that sort of thing. And this was late. This was in the 18, late 1800s, I think, uh, uh, when they excavated. I can't remember when they excavated Tel Dan. But basically, there were a lot of people saying he didn't exist until all of a sudden he did exist. 
and they say the same thing all the time about everything. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden they find a piece of the puzzle and it's like, oh my goodness, it does exist. It's like the Didache. Uh, we did a study of the Didache or earlier, the Didache. Uh, it's a teaching of the apostles. It's a writing that's contemporary to the, to the gospels and the letters of Paul. And it's basically what the early apostles taught the early church. And for years, this, this writing did not exist. It didn't exist. It didn't exist. And all of a sudden, they find a copy of it in the 1800s. And they look at it and they say, my goodness, this is the Didache. And they, uh, then they went around and found fragments that were part of the Didache that confirmed that this truly was the Didache. So all of that stuff is just goes to show that, that the Bible seems to have a really strong authority. And when people say, well, King David never existed because, because we haven't found any archaeology evidence of him, then my friends, it is always so exciting to me when all of a sudden they find the archaeology evidence or they find something and it actually works. Uh, it all fits together. The Bible, the, the early Israelites, the Jews, they took great pains in making sure that they preserved the text as best as they could. Because before there was text, it was all oral stories. And the, you can, I mean, we have writing. So we live in a world that's writing. We can, so I can go back to that document and look and see what it says. And of course, nowadays, people write stuff that isn't true. But back then, truth was paramount. And if you go, there are some societies around the world, at least, I don't know if they still are, but there have been, there are Bible translators that go into these small tribes and they learn the language and they, you know, they give them a written language. And up until that point, they have no written language. It's all oral. And if you go into any of these communities, it's all oral language. They place an incredible high priority on learning word for word the stories that exist in those communities. I mean, huge. They'll, they'll tell a story and they'll have a repeated back and it's, no, you missed this word. And they go back and back and forth until you repeat these stories and the, and the father and the grandfather and all listening and say, yes, that's this. And it's ingrained in you. You cannot change it. You dare not change it because it is so important to the carrying forward of that culture. And you can imagine that the Israelites learning the things of God and learning these things and they tell it. Remember, God says, you must tell these to your sons. They must learn these stories. And so the fathers would tell these stories to their sons and they would repeat them back and they would make sure that the sons knew the stories. They had to be complete stories. And then when Moses started writing them down, they knew that when they wrote down the story, it had to be as complete and as accurate as possible to, to make sure that they maintained the integrity of the stories that had been brought forth to them. And then they would count up the words and they would say, okay, this, the, the story of Exodus in Hebrew, in, in, when it's written in Hebrew on a papyrus text at the very end, they'd say there's 5,437 words and you'd have to go back and count and say, yes, there is. And then you'd count halfway through and you'd say, and the middle word is this. I mean, there were, and the first word, I mean, you, there was just a lot of stuff to, sure, to maintain the integrity of this stuff. It wasn't flippant. It was extremely important. 
I think that's one of the downsides of the internet today is that you can write stuff and it doesn't have to be true because it takes no effort to write it and you don't have to preserve it. And I mean, you're not even sure if it's going to get preserved. But back then, when you wrote something down on a papyrus, first of all, you spent an incredible amount of money and time doing that. And you wanted to make sure that it was as accurate as possible. And so you would do that. It was an incredible, incredible undertaking. And uh, But while that's true, over time, places change, street names change, things change. You know, empires come in, empires leave. They rename things. They come in with different languages. They, they change. It's like Constantinople uh, was changed to uh, Istanbul, and that happened right in the last um, 200 years, where the Ottoman Empire fell down, and or the Ottoman, yeah, I mean, Ottoman Empire took over, and and they changed all these names, uh, and took over Hagia Sophia Mosque and all that sort of, or Hagia Sophia Church called it a mosque. These things change. And so we really don't know. So the first thing is we have no idea where the route of the Exodus is. I showed you one yesterday that I think makes a lot of sense. It's kind of cool. Yam Sof by... When when Yam Sof, which is what it is in Hebrew, the Red Sea, when that was translated into Latin, it was translated into Red Sea. And the people that translated that was a group of 70 Hebrew scholars, Jewish scholars. That, and that document is called the Septuagint, which means 70. So when the Hebrew Bible was translated from Hebrew into Latin, and we still have this, that was, it's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint right here, these place names is called Yam Sof. Uh, it's it's translated as Red Sea. But that is a mistranslation. Sof has never meant red, which is interesting. So, the which is okay because the Hebrew scholars that were translating it, they may have known where this crossing was, and so they said it's the Red Sea. And so they translated it as the Red Sea. The problem is the Red Sea is the big the big sea that's south of the Sinai Peninsula. And then on both sides of the Sinai Peninsula, you have two tributaries of that. And both of those are called the Red Sea. So there's really not a lot of help. It's just like the Red Sea. Well, we're not sure it is, but everything here is called the Red Sea, so let's call it the Red Sea. Uh, but it's but Yam Sof, Yam Suf, does not mean Red Sea. Suf means reeds. <laughs> the Sea of Reeds. Oh my goodness. And that makes sense. I mean, most seas in their headwaters have reeds, right? Uh, because that's, and there are some seas that have reeds. There's some lakes that have reeds. There's some lakes that are inlets to seas that have reeds. Uh, so th- there are a lot of scholars that when they, when they started realizing, I mean, the, the archaeology started pulling together a lot of things that just really elevated the meaning and the and the historicity of the Hebrew text is just fascinating, fascinating um, world to live in. I, um, yeah, <laughs> fascinating world to live in. So these people go back and look at names and places and all that sort of thing. And so somewhere around the late 1800s, early 1900s, when they realized 
that suf really meant reeds, then they said that where, and plus you have this enlightenment, which is God couldn't have provided a miracle of killing, right? The, the Egyptian army and Pharaoh, right? That wouldn't happen. So you had to find a place. So they said it's way north of the Red Sea in this, this lake called the Sea of, uh, is it Tigrath? Or anyway, it's one of these lakes that's up north of the Red Sea that's got a lot of reeds in it now. And we have no idea how many reeds there were there 4,000 years ago, right? Now it has a lot of reeds. And so that must be the place where they crossed. And so that's where they draw the line. You know, and they say this is where it crossed because it couldn't have been a miracle where God took you know water 40 feet deep and created a space for the Israelites to go through. It had to be a place where there's you know, a foot of water, two feet of water. That has to be it, right? And so the whole Israelites cross, you know, and then you have to explain yourself, well, how in the world does Pharaoh's army drown in a foot of water, right? I mean, this, or two feet of water, or 10, you know, five feet of water. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, oh, well, maybe a big storm came in, this big flood came in, and all of a sudden now there's more water, you know, they have to do all this sort of stuff to throw themselves into knots by saying God can't do miracles, well, my friends, God can do miracles. God does miracles. We are a miracle, that we live and breathe and live in this world, that, that the universe was created out of nothing. If that's not the biggest miracle of all, I don't know what is. And so I personally believe that God very well could have done a miracle. It doesn't matter what sea it is. It could have been the Red Sea that's 20 feet deep, 100 feet deep, 500 feet deep. doesn't matter because God can do that. He can create a passageway for his people. He brought the plagues. You can bring him through, you know, whatever sea he wants to. And so uh, I like I like the idea of it being kind of farther south into one of these tributaries because that provides a tremendous amount of power of God to rescue. And when you read the Old Testament and you read this story, it does sound like a miracle. It, it does sound like Moses raised his staff and the winds blew an opening where the Israelites could go through. That's the way it reads. And in order for that to happen, it has to be deep water. And in order for it to deep water, it can't be in these little reedy lakes up at the top of the, you know, of the Red Sea. It has to be somewhere else in the Red Sea. And so uh, since I uh, have no problem saying that God can do miraculous things to rescue people, that's, I follow the more Southern route, right, than, than kind of what people who are very intelligent people say, you know, that it had to have been, right? Because God's, God can't do miracles. He, he just, it's impossible, right? It's, that doesn't work. God never, ever intervenes and does miracles. Some of these people would say God doesn't even exist, which is, which is horrible, horrible, horrible. God does exist. And, um, the proof of God to me is when you walk out in Sienega Creek and you see and smell and see the beauty of God's creation. And how could you say that that just came to be, that the beauty of all the animals, of, of nature, of, of the smell and the fragrance and just the joy of being out in his creation, how can you possibly say that he doesn't exist? It's, I, I just don't see it. I, and I'm a, I'm a pretty... You know, I think about these things a lot. Um, I have a, a you know a brain like all of you do, and uh, you know, I I I I think that uh, God 
the proof for me is is in the fact that we have creation and and Jesus and just his life and how he lived his life and how it how he completes God uh, you know walks all that stuff just fits to me it just fits to me it may not fit to everybody else but it fits to me all right uh, man okay so that's a prelude to where we got those are the two things I wanted to point out we don't know the Exodus route. Uh, and the whole Red Sea and the Sea of Reeds and all that sort of thing. We, we really don't know. And I don't think it matters because um, you're either going to take it on faith that God did this great miracle and maybe move to a south, southern point, or you might be skeptical, which is okay too, and say, well, maybe, you know, maybe we don't take it as literally that you know, Pharaoh's armies drowned and all that sort of thing, and so it's this route. But whatever works you know, in your faith that helps you build your faith, the important thing is that you grow your faith every day with God and you build that faith because that faith is what makes life worth living. Uh, let's see. Um, so yeah, Moses lifted his his staff. Uh, they went through. The waters divided. Uh, the Egyptians pursued them. And then Moses, the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand out of the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back into its place, and the Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and it, the Lord swept them into the sea. So whatever this thing happened, this that separated it, it was big enough. It had to be done, or else Moses couldn't get the red through the sea. And Moses stretched out his hand, and he went through. And then he reveals that you know he stretches out his hand again, and it waters flow back, and. And at daybreak, the sea went back into its place, and the Egyptians, you know, were swept into the sea. Just, there's no other way to read this. Uh, well, let's look at verse 28. Uh, this is Exodus 14, 28. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. And that's not six inches or 10 inches. I mean, it's, this, is, this is a lot of water. Not a single one survived. 29, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses. So oftentimes the proof is in the pudding, right? Moses had to take incredible steps of faith to follow God and to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, they complained and they grumbled and um, they, they, they said, we want to go back to Egypt. And Moses, you're a stupid idiot. I can't believe you brought us out here to die. And they grumbled and they grumbled. But Moses was faithful to what God wanted him to do and he did it. And God rescued them safely through the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, whatever it is. Um, and then, then they knew, they knew at this point that Moses was following what God wanted and that Moses was a great leader and they should follow him because he was going to lead them into the promised land. They knew. And so the really beautiful thing about this whole story is that from this point on, they never complain or grumble again not they complain and grumble through the whole thing um 
The one last point I want to make about this, and then we'll close it up, is that there are a couple times now that God has rescued people from water. The first was when the Lord told Noah to build an ark, and Noah was faithful and built an ark through the uh, the laughing of the people around him, saying, what are you building this ark for? There's no reason to build this ark. And, Mo- and Noah is like, you just watch. And all of a sudden the rains came, and everybody was killed except for Noah and his family. Uh, and now we have the whole entire descendants of Noah. This is the children of Israel, and they're all brought out of rescue for slavery, and all of them are going to be killed, except God rescues them from the water. And then take all of that and think about Jesus, who was brought into the water and brought out of the water. And he, he was the Son of God who rescues us. And then our rescuing from, from all of the ills of this life, our original sin, um, everything that we inherit from Adam, that we get rescued through our baptism, that we are drowned in the water, as it were, and brought up out of the water, as it were, to, to save us, that water washes over us and saves us. We've always had this incredible relationship between God and water. And uh, so I think it's really cool that the sign of the covenant, that our entrance into the kingdom is water. I just think that's really, really cool. Because when you are baptized, the waters flow over you and all of the sin that has brought placed upon you, the original sin that you inherited from Adam, all that is washed away. And now you are clean before God. And that is, that is a really, really, really powerful thing. I think it's a really powerful thing. So um, I think we'll stop there. We ended it, uh, what was that? Verse, verse 31. Now, when, when they cross over and they realize they're rescued, what do they do? I mean, what would you do? I mean, uh, it, it started with all the plagues, right? Plague, 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 plague. And then, um, and then the 10th plague and Pharaoh relents and says, yes, you can go. And so they pick up and they immediately go and they follow Moses and they go and all of a sudden it's the sea that they got to cross. And all of a sudden God does all this and they cross the Red Sea and then the sea closes again. They are safe now. They are 100% safe. It started with the first plague. Well, you know, from, from God saying, I'm going to rescue you. Now God's rescued him. What do you do? What would you do? Well, you can look forward and see what happens in chapter 15, or you can join me to next episode tomorrow and we'll talk about it. But I will, I will close with a little ditty. And that's, that's kind of your little foretaste for tomorrow. So uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for rescuing your people. We don't know where this was, but we know that you have a mighty hand and it could have been anywhere because you are a great and powerful God. Uh, and for that, we thank you. Be with us as we, uh, as we, as we take the rest of the day. Uh, be with us and keep us ever in your grace until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.